something I learned from the Serbian tribes. Churches are built where saints were martyred. A bridge requires a child in its foundations if it's to hold. All great works must begin with a sacrifice. Grady Hendrix, Horror Store. Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And I'm your guest host, Devin. We're back here with a rock star of the horror genre, Grady Hendrix, the author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, Paperbacks from Hell, and the soon-to-be-released We Sold Our Souls. So we're thrilled to have his horror expertise here on this episode of Books in the Freezer. copy of The Shining in your freezer. Oh, I was reading it last night and I got scared, so. But uh, you're safe from it if it's in the freezer? Well, safer. Thanks for having me. I, I feel like I'm not qualified to be a rock star. I, um, I, I'm, I'm not, I've never been that cool and I've only ever known people who are in bands. I've never actually been in a band, so, but I appreciate it. I feel good. I feel like your um, your new book gives you a little more cred. Well, so you, a little more rock star cred. I, I really appreciate. You know, it's it's nice that something as nerdy as a book can actually give anyone any cred whatsoever. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny when I was writing it because the main character Chris, she plays guitar. So I went and took guitar lessons, um, just sort of like you know, like what does it feel like to hold a guitar and do all that stuff. And I realized I really, really have zero musical ability. It was very the guy who was my guitar coach yoda uh jedi master he was really like he just looked sad all the time he tried his best but i think i just depressed him on an existential level i'm really glad you liked it like this is a book that was such a brutal um process to to write and and it just it just a lot of it's very hard on its sleeve and so i'm really really nervous about this book but people seem to be responding okay and like when you say things like that like you liked it it makes me feel really good and i can sleep at night but this was this book was like (laughs) really really brutal um so i've been very very worried and nervous about it you have no reason to be nervous i loved it thank you so we do have some just uh general questions and then we'll split it up into specific questions to go along with specific books that you've written Devin and I are both huge fans of your work oh, thanks. So we're very excited about this oh that's really nice of you guys I'm, I'm pretty sure I've given my best friend's exorcism to at least 10 people now and that's so huge because like book is books are such a retail business like it's so about word of mouth and sort of one-to-one things so when people say they recommend it to people I'm like thank you that's actually the only thing that moves the needle with book sales it's also just such a pretty book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they I... did an amazing job. Cork does a really good job with the packaging, which is really, really nice. I love that the paperback and the hardcover are different. Well, you know, one of the things that I feel strongly and that fortunately the art directors at Quirk feel strongly because I've been through a few of them is like if you're making an object and you want people to buy an actual object, it should look kind of cool. And if you have an opportunity to design it twice, why wouldn't you? That is a good philosophy. No, I love the yearbook. 
And I love how detailed it is, even with the the afterward and all the ads and everything, just really stick into the theme. Well, I guess also horror store too. There's little Easter eggs and little stuff all over them. Yeah, but I've got a sweet spot for that uh, Best Friends Exorcism hardcover design. That like you mm-hmm. know, there's the little secret Easter egg for Gretchen and Abby's story and their yearbook signatures. And Tim, who was the art director at the time, Tim O'Connell, he went a little overboard and in the best way. But he wanted every single one of those ins- those signatures on the inside cover, like you get in your yearbook, to be different, but to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And so I think he wound up recruiting something like 32 different high school kids that people he knew knew. And each one did a different one of those inscriptions. So that is artisanal, handcrafted child labor signatures. <laughs> wow. Like, don't get much fancier than that. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I, yeah, that is like real effort. So how did you get into horror? Uh, You know, it's never something I consciously got into. Like, I always thought I was just writing. And I guess people were like, oh, you're writing horror. And I was like, okay, I thought I was writing something about just the world around me. But okay, horror, sure. Um, And, you know, I mean, I've always been a fan of horror movies and horror books, but not like a huge Uber fan. Like, Like, I like them. But like, when I was growing up, I was much more into action stuff, like horror books, like Paperbacks from Hell is full of horror paperbacks I never would have picked up as a kid because the covers were too gross and scary and all that stuff. That freaked me out. When I was a kid, I was reading mostly sci-fi and um, a ton of really, really violent men's adventure books. Um, And, like, my diet was almost exclusively, like, action movies. So this just sort of happened as I got older, maybe maybe aging, you know? You confront the horror of your own disintegrating body in the mirror every morning and, like... (laughs) It just your mind goes in that direction. I have definitely loved the art that has come from your existential <laughs> from my from my vanity, from my from my yeah. depression <laughs> about my how I'm no longer a pretty, 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 pretty boy with skin that's soft as like calf's leather. I know it's a bummer. <laughs> well, I also did want to say uh, congratulations on Horror Store and My Best Friend's Exorcism being optioned. How excited are you to see your work adapted for the screen? Oh, it's really, really cool. I mean, like, it, I, I love it. I mean, it's so nice. It's very weird, though. It's a very removed process. Like, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, like Horror Store is so many years ago. And so every now and then I'll get an update on the production and they'll send me a script or whatever. And no one wants to hear what I have to think because as the writer, you're sort of the least important person in the process for the adaptation. But, you know, it's it's like getting little postcards from old friends who've gone off to college. You know, like your kids have gone to college. Like, well, Amy, we've made Amy an alcoholic. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, poor Amy. I hope she gets out of that. That sounds bad. I, you know, I hope she's getting enough to eat. I hope she's not just eating ramen. Um so it's very you feel very removed from the process, which is which is just weird, but but interesting. It's kind of like when people send fan art of stuff they've drawn from the books, and you're like, it's very cool to see what someone else does when they play with the same toys. Do you get a lot of fan art? A fair amount, not as much as I wish I did, but like enough where I feel like I've got a little fan art folder, and um, sometimes people let me share them, and sometimes they don't. But it's super nice, like. Um, People send me like needlework and that kind of thing, which is always appreciated. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really nice. As long as no one, actually, if someone sent me a human head, I'd be kind of curious. Like, you know what I mean? I was about to say, as long as no one sends me a human head, but then I'm like, well, why not? What do I have against? (laughs) That would actually be the most interesting thing I'd ever have gotten in the mail, period, full stop. 
Oh, yeah. Keep that in a, well, I was going to say a jar. I don't. Is it hinting to our listeners? We do not condone committing murder to son Grady Hendrix, a cool, cool kid. I, I kind of do, actually. Like, that would be okay. amazing. Um, <laughs> but I haven't been on the other side of that equation. You know what I mean? Like, it seems cool, but like, look at Jodie Foster. Like, she's nothing but sort of upset about John Hinckley. So maybe it's not as good when you're actually, it sounds better than it is, you know? That's possibly true. Um, I did have another question about uh, a project you're working on right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, the production for uh, Satanic Panic, the new one for Fangoria. So as someone with a passion for classic horror, how does it feel to play a role reviving such an important horror publication? Very weird. And actually, like... Um, the Satanic Panic script is, is going well. Everything's great. I just, like, two days ago sent off another draft. Uh, but it's, like, rushing into production super fast. But uh, being part of Fango is fun. I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies. So I'd buy Fangoria and, like, read about the movies and pretend I'd seen them. So, you know, it's something I've always had a history with. And then a really good friend of mine, Mike Gingold, was one of the editors of Fangoria for a really long time. And so um, I, I, it's always been cool to be near that. Um you know, I touch Mike as much as I can. No, that is really cool. And as a kid who grew up like religiously, I totally understand the like pretending you've seen movies that you haven't seen. And like, so you can be a part of that conversation. Oh, totally. <laughs> Definitely been there. It's funny. I actually saw Friday the 13th part two a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, I'll rewatch this. I haven't seen a Friday the 13th movie in forever. And it wasn't until I was halfway through, I was like, this movie feels really different than how I remember it. I remembered... I never saw it. I just lied about seeing it for so many years that I convinced myself I'd seen it. It was really a weird, it, it, I suddenly felt like an unperson, like, you know, I was being erased from reality. I've done that with a couple of books, but not with the movie. <laughs> I did the same thing with Alien. I read that comic book adaptation, and that was my version of Alien for years until I finally got to rent it from the video store secretly uh, before fiction you were uh, an established journalist and before that you answered phones for the american society of psychical research um i heard you talking about this before you said you didn't know whether or not any of it any of that stuff was actually real but that was the least interesting part of the experience uh do you think that kind of perspective influences the way you write horror well yes and no it's funny like when i did horror store i had all these things i didn't want to do because quote unquote real hauntings and that sort of phenomena is so different from what you see in movies, like in reality, when people investigate hauntings and that kind of thing, the history of the place has almost nothing to do with the phenomena, usually. Um, but yet in movies, you know, like in, in books, it's always about the history of the place. It's the return of the repressed. It's, you know, these sins you can't bury. And so I had a really hard time mm -hmm. with Horror Store because in reality... When people claim they've seen a ghost or experienced a haunting, it's pretty boring. I mean, for them, it's a profound experience. But, you know, like a chair moves. They see someone walking down a hall who's not there. You know, there's no one getting their faces ripped off or like anything like that. And so the first draft of Horror Store was really boring. And my editor was like, this is really boring. I was like, yeah, but it's real, man. And he's like, well... <laughs> is it or is any of it real like can't you just make things up and i was like oh that's probably a much better uh approach to it you know um it's like that marathon man story you know where dustin hoffman like stays up for three days in a row and like does all this stuff for his torture scene and Lawrence olivier says you might just want to try acting it's a whole lot easier and i realized i could just try acting and it was easier so yeah, it's they have so little to do with each other. It's it's hard to to put your finger on. Oh, this influences that. I'm sure they must. You know, the one thing that working for the ASPR did is, you know, it made me really fascinated by by death. 
Um, because I think that's sort of the only kind of important part of being alive, the fact that it ends and we all kind of have that in common. And so it's always interesting. I always find that as a really interesting shortcut to emotional connections with people or to a more emotional sort of um, thing with the characters. You kind of, for me, get at their attitudes about death and dying and that kind of thing. And it's, it's, um, that's usually where the rubber kind of meets the road. And that is such an interesting experience. Um, We did have one more of the general questions before we slip into the more specific ones. And we do like to mention little Easter eggs when we can find them. Something our listeners might not know is that your wife makes an appearance in your novels. (laughs) So how did that start out? Because she insisted that she be murdered in every single book. I thought, well, I can make that happen. That is one wish of yours I can make come true. So uh, it's somewhere in every single book, my wife gets murdered or goes missing permanently. And so for her, it's always really fun to see where it is. And also, I got to say, like, books are like total packages. So I always hate acknowledgments in books that aren't fun. Like the Lemony Snicket uh, series of Unfortunate Events, they have great dedications mm-hmm. that tell a little story story through all the books i always hate it when it's like two r you know the reasons why i'm like who gives a shit like why are you putting your weird inside joke in a book for hundreds of thousands of people or let's be honest a few thousand people to read like Mm -hmm. that's so i don't know that always seems so self-indulgent and insular and look we're on the inside we all know who r is and r knows what the reasons are i'm like well the dedication should be entertaining it's taking up a whole page so that's why i kill my wife in the (laughs) Because because, because murdering women is always entertaining. If horror has taught us exactly. anything. Exactly. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did have some questions about Horror Store. Now, when I read Horror Store, I remember thinking how just perfectly you captured that terrible reality of working in retail. Oh, thank you. So did you... Did you draw any inspiration from your own first job experience? Uh, I, you know, I only worked retail really briefly. It's also like service jobs I don't have the stomach for. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not made that way. And so I always have a ton of admiration for people who can do those jobs well, because they've got a set of wiring I just don't have. But I have had really terrible jobs, and I have had some brief retail jobs. And, you know, jobs are... Jobs are the only thing that's so lousy that you actually get paid money to do them. Like, there is literally nothing Mm -hmm. else in life except maybe, like, hey, put your tongue on that piece of roadkill that you will ever get paid money to do uh, except a job because they just suck so badly. No, definitely. Um, Yeah, I worked in retail for, like, a very brief time. And I also liked that you had that, you know, corporate lingo. Like, of course, we say this and this is the way we do things. Well, that was very much, um, like, I've I've written that corporate lingo. Like, I've I've done freelance copywriting and uh, copy editing training manuals and catalog copy. And I've worked for companies, you know, in the back of house and stuff. So yeah, that stuff was fun to do because I've actually had to do it for real. And there's something insidious about the the we in the in that kind of communication. Yeah, I think there really is. The like, this is how we say this. <laughs> it's very like, it's very, uh, there's something very like self-negating about that, right? Like, Ultimately, we want to get rid of as much personality from you as possible so that you are a better worker, which makes sense. There's this terrifying Peter Thiel quote where he talks about how individuality is just a system error of people who haven't found the right startup to work at yet. And I was just like, wow, that's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, wow. (laughs) 
and the assumption that the only work that matters is startup work, which I really wish I knew sort of like the the tech industry better because I feel like there's a there's such a combination of misguided visionary energy and um sort of aspirational snobbery at work there, you know, in the worst parts of it. Like in retail, there's all this weird, like, um, sort of Sauron, like, um, overseeing every aspect of your behavior when you're on the job. And this idea that your individuality gets in the way. But in startup work, there seems to be this sort of weird missionary zeal that's like can be really misapplied. And, and, and this idea that what other kind of work matters, but what I'm doing, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing Uber for muffins. What could possibly, I'm disrupting helicopter rentals. Like what else could be important except that? Oh yeah, definitely. So I'm expecting a book on startup culture from you soon. <sighs> no, I'm obsessed right now. I just, I was just introduced to the fact that there's a company called Valades that is Uber for helicopters. I don't even know how that works. Like, like, I just need a helicopter to swing by and pick me up. Who needs that? Who are these people? I know, that's such a power move. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so fun, though. Okay, so, um, Grady, the, the choice to do the Ikea-style catalog for Horror Store and even some of the digital extras for uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism um, seemed like such a really inspired choice, uh, bringing up the multimedia aspect of it. Uh, how did you kind of come to the idea that that's something you want to do with your work? Well, the horror store thing was my editor's idea, Jason Rakulik. And he really was like, I see this book looking like an Ikea catalog with this stuff in it. And I always thought it was amazing. And one of the nice things about working with a smaller publisher is you get a lot of interaction with the art department. It's just not that it's not big enough to isolate you from that process. Um, like it, like it would be at a much bigger publisher. And so the art director, Andy Reed at the time, she was like, okay, well, what if we, uh, put a piece of furniture in the front of each chapter? And I'd be like, oh, that's great. What if they changed and turned more into like torture instruments? She's like, great. But then we need catalog copy. I'm like, I got the catalog copy. So we just sort of fed off of each other back and forth. And then when my best friend's exorcism came along, I was like, well, why don't we keep doing that? Like, it's fun. It's fun to do. It requires more work, but it's kind of worth it, I think. And doing the extra digital content for the ebook, I felt like, well, we have the option to do this. I can write things. I mean, that's sort of what I get paid to do. Why don't? Why am I so lazy that I wouldn't write that extra content if we wanted to do something with it? And it's funny, you do that stuff and you never know how much it penetrates. Like, you know, it was like about four or five months after the ebook came out that I actually heard from people that they were reading the extra content. So I was like, well, you know, as a journalist, you're kind of used to people not reading your work. Like, you know, you just throw it out in the world and probably people just use it to wrap fish in. So we didn't know. So it was nice to start getting feedback that it sort of was seeping out there, you know, like a slow growing fungus. I didn't know that the, the ebook had extra stuff. Aha, see? Actually. Yeah. Was that the ebook for My Best Friend's Exorcism or Horror Store? Yeah, that was the uh, for My Best Friend's Exorcism. We put in a bunch okay. of like supplemental material in the ebook. Oh. A lot of playlists, a lot of letters, a lot of quizzes. So am I going to need to own it on like every every way it comes out to get like the full experience? Then? Yeah, exactly. It's how we make you triple dip. <laughs> There's not a ton of supplemental stuff in the paperback for My Best Friend's Exorcism, I don't think. But it's got that cool VHS cover that I Oh my God, made. yeah. Th that cover is amazing. I bought the paperback for it and I was reading it and I loved it. 
And then I got my friend to read it and she bought the digital copy and she was like, hey, there's a postcard in here. I was like, what? And then I was like, okay. And I looked it up and saw it was digital components. So then I had to buy the ebook. <laughs> it's it how we get you. We make you just, you know, it's like if this was a movie, we'd have reissued seven different <laughs> collector Blu-rays by now. There's the steel book. There's the box set. There's a limited edition. <laughs> of course. So the VHS copy has like an actual picture on the back, right? Like from the movie. Well, that's not the movie. That's actually art from Doogie Horner, who's the art director when he did that one. Uh, he took art and manipulated yeah. it until it looked crazy. But it's so... And at first I was like, oh, well, that's a little cheap. I was like, oh, that's so good. It, it really is genius <laughs> yeah. what he did. And he had no time to do that. Like, I mean, the, the quirk was saying, I don't think we have time to do something different for the paperback because he sort of was coming in. To, he had been the art director left and he came back and he came in late in the process and he was absolutely determined to make it happen. So that really squeaked in over the last, uh, just under the wire. Yeah, no, it looked like legitimate. I was like, wow, they really put a ton of effort <laughs> into this. Um so I do have to ask, you mentioned in Paperbacks from Hell that horror is a woman's genre, and I've noticed that you do write female protagonists a lot of the time. It's not on purpose. Um, and, and, and there's two different things there. Like One is, I wind up writing female protagonists because I find it more interesting and easier for me to write about someone who's I've got a bit of a remove from. Like, if it was a dude, I'd be mm -hmm. like, you know... I'd be all self-conscious, like, oh, did I mention his chiseled abs yet? Like, you know, his his <laughs> stunning good looks, his the casual insouciant way he throws his curly locks. Like, I, I don't want to make sure people get a good impression. But if it's someone different enough for me, like the opposite gender or something like that, it gives me some distance to sort of write them like a real person um, rather than just a glorified version of me. Um, and then, but also I do think horror is a woman genre. And I'm never quite sure why people feel like horror is a boy genre. That's a really recent development. Like, I mean, the very first horror novel that's still kind of read today is 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 Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. uh, all through the 18th century, the gothic novelists were, were women. The big ones, Anne Radcliffe was the bestseller. Uh, but then there were a ton of other women writing gothic novels. A ton of, like, Elizabeth Gaskill and all these other women in the 19th century writing uh, ghost fiction. Um, and then all through the 20th century, you had, you know, and I, I'm, I'm missing names right now just because I'm terrible with names, but you had everyone from uh, Violet Paget on forward uh, writing really amazing, well, that's late 19th century, but writing really amazing horror fiction, both thrillers and um, uh, supernatural fiction. And so, and that continued all the way through the paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. And a lot of those women's books have gone out of print and been forgotten and, you know, so we pretend they didn't exist. Um, but when you think about the 80s, which was sort of that blockbuster era for horror, you've got Stephen King, sure. But then right behind him, you've got uh, V.C. Andrews and Anne Rice. Um, so it's, yeah. you know, it's always been a genre with a lot of women. And I feel like there really, as far as I'm concerned, only two books that you could make the argument for as the great 20th century horror novel and one Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House and I feel strongly that the other is Toni Morrison's Beloved um those I think really tower over everything else in the the century and it's both female authors definitely I uh read Beloved recently and I kind of went into it blind not knowing that it had this you know horrific supernatural angle but yeah yeah no I definitely yeah well and it's crazy like people act like it's not a horror novel and I'm like 
on the first page, she says my house is haunted. And it is a literal yeah. haunting. Like, it's, it's it's not even just we're saying, oh, slavery is a metaphorical horror, even though it's a very real one. It is a literal haunting with a literal ghost in it. <laughs> That's something I don't think people think about. But no, that, that is actually the case. It is 100% like a ghost story. Yeah. And, you know. It's, well, for part of No, it. exactly. And it's sort of like the same way that, like, science fiction has really claimed The Handmaid's Tale as its own. Like, this is the gateway book between literary fiction that you can feel respectable reading and genre and you can pass Mm -hmm. through this door both ways and i think that's been a huge huge great symbol and book uh that's recruited so many new readers and gotten people to think so differently about science fiction as a genre and i don't know why horror doesn't claim beloved the same way i just helped do that npr poll that the 100 readers choice horror novels and beloved got mm-hmm. voted on there which i was so happy to see and then people voted on the handmaid's tale and so when i was talking to the other judges i was like crying like a tiny little baby i was like why do we have to have the handmaid's tale on this it's like it's, that's that belongs to science fiction let science fiction have it like we've got beloved why do we feel self-conscious let's not take their toys <laughs> and i like handmaid's tale it's a great book it's just not horror it's science fiction it's like 1984 is horrific but it's science fiction mm-hmm Okay, so uh, my best friend's exorcism is set in the 80s, clearly, um, which, especially for a horror fan, is an incredibly nostalgic time. Uh, How do you think the book would differ if you set it in the modern day? And is that part of the reasoning for setting it back and during this time? It couldn't have been written if it was set in the modern day. The reason it's set in the 80s is, is honestly, I had the title before I had anything else. Um, which I feel like is the best way to go about it. Like my new book, I'm having a tough time with the title and I just feel like I'm floundering in circles uh, as I write it. So I had to think like, okay, my best friend's exorcism, what would be something that would, um, you know, replace a straight up belief in in Christianity as as something powerful to use as an article of faith to to combat a demon? I was like, oh, of course, friendship. Like that's the other thing that can be as powerful as that to people. And, and, And it certainly has been for me for most of my life. But I was like, and when were friendships the strongest? I mean, clearly when you're in high school and you have those friendships that come and go, you know, they exist. And then when you're done with high and you can't imagine living without them, and then you're done with high school and you kind of never see that person again. And I was like, okay, but if I'm writing about high school, I have to write about my high school. And 88 is when I was in 10th grade, like Abby and Gretchen. And I don't know enough about high school to write about it today. And it's radically different. And I'm too lazy to do the research. So I had to set it when I knew high school. And that was the 80s. And I sort of lucked out because I really hate 80s nostalgia, but I kind of lucked out that my book that is set in the 80s and, and has a lot of that 80s stuff in it uh, hit right at the sweet point in that sort of 80s nostalgia boom. Which actually kind of, you kind of partially answered my question, uh, which is I when I was rereading it a few weeks ago, I noticed that it has a lot of strong layers. I will say my favorite is Abby and Gretchen's Friendship. Uh, and I was curious which one came first. So was it the exorcism, the 80s, or the French? Oh, the exorcism. My best friend's exorcism. It's like, it's all right there on the title. You know what I mean? Like, I just, God, that's a yeah. good title. Um, and I really sold it to my my publisher, like, based on the title. They're like, we're going to publish a book with that title. Um, which was great, because the first few drafts were real garbage. Um, and very different from the final product. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a version that, like... Half of it took place in the present day and half of it took place in 88 and it alternated chapters. It was super clever. I just wasn't a good enough writer to pull it off. Um, There was a version that was a lot more over the top. There was a version where the exorcist was um, uh, 
Gretchen's father, or no, Abby's father. I mean, there was all kinds of different versions of that book. I am a terribly inefficient writer. So I write like radically different versions of the book over and over again. So this is the non over the top <laughs> version. I really would like to see that. Well, you know, it's funny. Like it's, it was over the top to the point where it didn't matter anymore. <laughs> it was a little boring in how much it was over the top. All right. That's fair. So yeah. So uh, that would transition us to talking about paperbacks from hell. And first is paperbacks from hell highlights the progression of and trends of horror from the seventies to the eighties. Uh, which one of them were your favorites to research? And if you could be an author during the height of any of those periods, which one do you think you'd be oh, right for? I, for me, it's animal attack books all the way. Um, I would have written animal attack books. I would have read only animal attack books. I love the idea that animals, like these kittens, these jellyfish, these cicadas, these wolves, <laughs> these badgers have just had it up to here with people like we're just gonna murder the next person i see i'm gonna murder the shit out of them and they just do and it's so great and it's great when it's sort of running out of steam that cycle and they're looking for any animal it's like you know uh baharia lizard snails uh or baharia carrying snails or jellyfish or you know i mean i mean kittens like killer kittens they're just adorable um so it's like it's like the internet's attacking you so yeah killer animals hands down crabs was one of my favorites mm. the whole crab series is great i uh, do you have do you know which animal would be the attacker in your novel you know funnily enough i would probably go for rabbits because there's only been a couple of killer rabbit books and i feel like um rabbits are disgusting and Although they seem adorable and silly, and every scene involving them would be ridiculous, like, they really are silly <laughs> little bastards. Uh, I don't know. The ones with the red eyes, I think, are unnerving. Oh, those white rabbits? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, well, you know, that would be a great thing to have all the magician's assistant animals teaming up. Like, you know, rabbits mm. and white doves and white tigers yeah. <laughs> all teaming up to, like, kill magicians. Just cleanse the earth. Because that would be my other bugbear. <laughs> I hate magicians. So, like, um, you know, that would that would actually be one of the best books ever written. Uh, you said before it's not a hundred percent a fully comprehensive list. So, what are the lesser trends that didn't make it into the book? And if you were to do a sequel from '90s to present day, what do you think those chapter headings would be like? Oh well, you know, le not even lesser trends, full blown trends. I just never got to. I had a whole chapter on Nazi horror that I had to cut out for space. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's books in there like Saul Stein's The Resort, where uh, like it's a it's a it's a health resort in Big Sur, and it sends out advertising circulars and, and coupons and things to get travelers to come stay there for like you know honeymoon weekends and stuff. But it targets mm -hmm. Jewish travelers, and it turns out that the resort is then when people get there, they drug them into a state of zombie-like compliance and turn their Jewish guests into forced labor on their fa marijuana farms, which they're using the <laughs> proceeds of to fund the rise of the Fourth Reich in Texas. I mean, it's a blast. Um, and, and, you know, really anti-Semitic and horrible and tasteless, but a blast. Um, and uh, so Nazi horror definitely would be in there. Um, I feel like I never... I, I never gave the Splatterpunk guys enough time and energy. I should have read a lot more of their stuff. I read a lot of it, but I, I could have gone deeper. Jack Ketchum's not in there at all. Um, everyone wants me to... Where's the Richard Lehman chapter? And I just don't... 
have anything nice to say about Richard Lehman, although a lot of people like him. He's not to my taste, so I thought it was better to just be silent on that one. Um, I would have a much expanded YA section. I've gotten really into YA horror. I would have blown that up huge. A ton that I've stumbled across, all this techno horror. I touch on it a little in there with computers, but there was a whole subgenre of telephone horror in the 70s and in the early 80s. So there's just so much. Celebrities writing paperback horror. Uh, Christina Crawford, Joan Crawford's daughter, who is immortalized as you know the author of Mommy Dearest, she wrote a paperback horror original. E. Howard Hunt, the convicted Watergate conspirator, he wrote horror paperbacks and they would put on the cover, convicted Watergate conspirator, E. Howard Hunt. <laughs> um, so there was so much I missed, you know. I And I, I've started stumbling into earlier stuff, like some stuff from the mid-60s. It's like not quite developed enough yet, but it's getting there. I wish I'd had more of that in. I mean, there, there's so much, you know. It's, 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 um, I could have done more. Could have done better. <laughs> oh, man. I would have really been interested in a, a YA chapter because I know a lot of people stumble into Stephen King when they're younger, but like my religious parents like did not let me read Stephen King. Right. So I, I would read, uh, you know, like the Lois Duncans and like Caroline B. Cooney. Oh, yeah. That I found like at my library. Well, it's amazing to me that a lot of people have forgotten who Lois Duncan was. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's Lois Duncan. Yeah. Although there's a... You know what you did last summer. Uh, exactly. And there's a new movie with, uh, I think, Uma Thurman in it. Um, what's The Shadow in the Hall? No. Um, uh, Down a Dark Down a Dark Hall. Thank you. That's got a movie adaptation that's just coming out now. Oh, I did see that today. Um, and I, I read that for the first time very recently. And yeah, it was just very nostalgic. Oh, yeah. To dive into that again. It's like cozy. Oh, yeah. Lois, well, Lois Duncan's stuff so... Um... It's so weird because it's some of it's great. Like Daughters of Eve, I think is fantastic. Um, I really like. I know what you did last summer, but some of it's like so low stakes. It's um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a girl and her family's in the witness protection program, and she thinks a mafia hitman is following them. And so, literally, the whole book is just this girl being watched by this guy and being like, "I feel very uneasy about this." And then there's sort of this rushed action beat in the final chapter, but otherwise, it's just very sleepy. So, but yeah, Lois Duncan's all over the place. Now, I've heard a lot of really terrific things about your paperbacks from hell live events. What exactly do one of those shows entail? Um, nothing good. <laughs> I got really tired of author events that were just like <laughs> reading from the book and saying it's just boring. It's boring for me. It's boring for the people who come. It's hard to leave your house. So I was like, you know, I should do a show with paperbacks from hell. And so it's basically a sort of live version of the book with lots of excerpts being read. It runs about an hour. So it's like about 65 to 70 minutes. I use PowerPoint in it to have slides of the covers and artwork in it. And in that 65 minutes, I think there's something like 192 slides. So it's pretty fast paced. There's songs in it. It's a lot of fun. And I'm actually working on a new one for We Sold Our Souls to do uh, a live performance about um, heavy metal horror and heavy metal and horror and the satanic panic. Oh, man, I already get to one of these live shows. <laughs> I, I try. I try hard, maybe too hard. No, I've heard great things. I like to plug his newsletter at this point because he's got the paperbacks from hell uh, reviews that come out oh, yeah. every now and then. Um, I actually picked up Devil Doll because... Oh, of Devil Doll's so weird. Um, yeah, no, the next one's coming out on Friday. So it's basically, if you go to my website, which is gradyhendrix.com, and go to the contact page, 
you can sign up for my newsletter and I send it out about every other week. It's I'm writing. I want to send it every week, but right now I'm working on a new book. So it's every other week. And I usually write about, you know, wherever I'm going to be and whatever I'm doing, but also an essay on whatever paperback horror novel I'm re reading. So right now this week's is going to be, I don't know if you guys know Jay's journal. Have you ever heard of that? No. So do you remember go ask Alice? Yes, I do. Remember so that. go ask Alice, which is ostensibly written by anonymous and, the girl's therapist published it. The therapist later found another diary of a young man named Jay. And Jay uh, was a good Mormon who fell in with Ouija boards and became a Satanist and wound up killing himself because of the devil. And so Jay's journal is this satanic panic version of Go Ask Alice. Uh, and it is just as pernicious and full of lies and half-truths and hysterical and poorly written as Go Ask Alice, but it has the extra bonus of Jay is a bit of a poet, and so he's always writing poetry, and it has some of the worst poetry I've ever read in my life. <laughs> so that's this Friday, or by the time this comes out, it'll be in the rearview mirror, but... Um, yeah, so it's always it's always something new and terrible in the paperbacks from hell newsletter. So you're still keeping up reading on the horror paperbacks. <laughs> well, I hate the fact that the books have gone up in price. Um, you know, it's like I, I want these books to be read. And I hate the fact that like you can't find copies of some of them for less than 40 bucks now. I feel very guilty about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I've seen more of a demand. Well, Devin and I, both of our background is in BookTube. So, you know, mm, like the, yeah, sure. the, book, the bookish side of YouTube and a lot of it, you know, is, you know, unboxing like beautiful hardbacks and in like the small horror section, there has definitely been a rise in popularity in like getting these like horror paperbacks from used bookstores, I think definitely since the release of paperbacks from. Yeah. Home. And it has, you know, and one thing I will say is I really hope it's driving business to all these used bookstores because God, man, there's some great one. I mean, I, I never go anywhere without checking out the crummy paperback used bookstore. And I'm always finding some of the most amazing stuff. I mean, it's still so much of it out there that I've never even heard of. I think you've definitely done that. Um, but yeah, uh, speaking of uh, We Sold Our Souls. Um, so We Sold Our Souls is a Faustian story uh, diving into the world of 90s heavy metal. Could you tell us a little more about what readers can expect from it? Sure. So We Sold Our Souls, it, I originally pitched it my publisher as it's sort of this metal band from the 90s and, and they grew up and their lead singer went off and found fame on his own, but the band never made it. You know, he left them and they all just sort of went and got day jobs. You know, they became hotel reservation clerks and got into real estate and then now, when they're all in their 40s and, and early 50s, they discover that uh, their lead singer became famous not because he sold his own soul to the devil, but because he sold their souls. And so my publisher really expected like sort of, and, and I thought it was going to be this sort of spinal tap meets Faust kind of like demonic road road trip book. But I had to take it really seriously, like to do it. Like, okay, well, what's a soul? Like, how do you sell it? Who wants it? What do they do with it? And it just took me down this rabbit hole that was really depressing. I sort of wound up in a kind of a dark place with this book, which is one reason I was worried about it. And, and so it winds up becoming sort of about, yes, everything I just said, but also sort of conspiracy theories and sort of this idea that we're all a victim of some grand plan that we don't have a role in except to sort of be human grease on the, the, the cogs of its terrible engines. And, and this helpless idea that really seems to have kind of crept over from fiction into reality of, you know, what, what matters? Like we, we're all just pinned up, you know, veal 
we're we're just you know for for the Illuminati or whatever conspiracy, the New World Order, whatever conspiracy theory you believe in, we're just we're just chumps, and and only suckers believe in such things as free will and all that, and the one percent rules the world, and none of the rest of us have a chance since birth, and. Really, I, I, I wound up on a lot of conspiracy forums and message boards and private news groups and stuff, sort of doing research, and it got dark. And, and I was a big on conspiracy theories when I was in high school. Like, I thought they were amazing. And I sort of checked out of it around Y2K, and checking back into it, just things have gotten so horrific and serious and humorless and 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 life or death in the sort of conspiracy communities out there and and kind of hateful in a lot of ways it really took a toll and in fact when i was finally done with the book and like it actually had gone off to the printers and and i i went and unsubscribed to a lot of these forums and news groups and stuff i was on and the next day i woke up and i was like i don't have to go look at blank or blank or blank i don't have to read any of that and i felt so free it was like it was just like taking little sips of cancer every day it was so just hopeless and despair inducing so that's a really good sell job for the book run right out and get it (laughs) um Oh, man. I definitely didn't feel <laughs> horrible reading it. Uh, I definitely thought it, it was, well, I don't want to spoil it. Well, you know, the thing with the book is... I'm like, I felt like it, it had some hope in it. Well, and that's the thing with the book. There were three completely separate versions of the book before I got to the one that you read. Mm-hmm. My publisher just kept rejecting them. They were like, this is too bleak. This is too depressing and all this. And I realized, and, and it really got bad because you don't get the rest of your advance until the publisher accepts the manuscript. And like, I sort of expected to be accepted like five or six months before, about six months before it was. And so I was really running on fumes. Like no one gets into books for the money. And um, it was really bleak and uh, financially. And and so I, I got down so I didn't know what to do. And I realized that Chris, who was my main character, I'd gotten her down into this horrible situation. And it was kind of like I had to find a way for her to get out of it. And as I sort of figured that out with her, like, it's kind of like she dragged me out by my collar. Um, And it's like when it gets to the end, it was like I felt like I'd finally emerged from this long, dark tunnel. And, And so it's this weird thing that, like, writing this book really trashed my life for about 12 months. But writing this book really also kind of created the thing that saved my life at the end of the 12 months. And maybe not to sound too melodramatic, it is after all just a book, but like just in terms of my mental health and my financial well-being and my relationship with other people, like this book got me in a hole and the imaginary people in this book dragged me out of that hole. Wow. It's very fitting for an author to say. Yeah. Books are weird because you focus so intensely on imaginary people and things for a very long concentrated period of time. And, um they become more real and kind of important to you than what's actually around you. And you get this phenomena where it's kind of like, I think it's a little bit the same way that if you buy a Volvo and you're suddenly like, I never noticed how many people have Volvos. Is everyone buying Volvos? But it's just like your perspective has changed. Books do that. You start to see coincidences you wouldn't have seen before. You start, things happen. Like when I wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism, I was doing copy edits. And out of the blue, my best friend from high school, who I hadn't seen in like, I would say 15 years, just sort of dropped me a line and was like, hey, what's up? And um, we reconnected and like really like are close now and see each other quite a bit. We hadn't spoken for years. So it's like, ooh, and it's when I was writing about those high school friendships. But it's just that becomes the lens you're looking at the world through. You know what I mean? So it's like all those things become important. 
No, definitely. Um, one of the similarities I noticed between We Sold Our Souls and My Best Friend's Exorcism is that you took horror tropes that are normally religious in nature and kind of play them out in a more secular way. Would you say this helps broaden the appeal for modern audiences? Well, I grew up in a family that was super religious, like uh, not like crazy religious, but, you know, church and Sunday school every every week and that kind of thing. And so I grew up seeing the world through this very Christian framework. And so I'm not a particularly churchy dude now. And so for me, taking that framework I kind of grew up with and trying to find a way to make it non uh, to take the to take the dogmatic part of religion out of it, um, to take mm-hmm. the theology I guess out of it a little bit and leave the spiritual part behind is is kind of interesting and you know and also like you know horror is the one genre that deals with death and dying and religion is supposedly you know the thing in our lives that deals with death and dying so they wind up being connected that way too so there's no real conscious plan to it it's just that's kind of how i'm put together well it definitely works oh thanks um and we sold our souls is written i felt like with such love for heavy metal and horror and on the surface they seem like two completely different worlds but what do you think makes them a great pair oh well you know they both play with the same kind of symbols and imagery, right? Demons and skeletons mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And there's also this real, um, this idea that like horror is real, right? It's the skull behind the skin and heavy metal always values itself on like, we're going to tell it how it is. You know, we're going to show you the real world. Um, it's a giant howling pit full of monsters. And I was talking to a dude in a band when I was writing this book And he was talking really disparagingly of some kinds of metal. And he's like, you know, I'm into power metal. He's like, I want like dragons and shit. That's what I want. And he was really into the fantasy part. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Like metal is one of those genres. It doesn't sing about relationships all the time. It doesn't sing about love. It doesn't have to sing about, uh, you know, like real life, quote unquote. It can sing about fantasy and build these like fantasy worlds and these metaphors that are very complicated and complex and everything. And and that are somewhat supernatural and invested with this supernatural energy. And that's, you know, what horror does. So they're super similar. Here's a question just about the the horror genre, I guess in general. Um with with horror movies like uh, Get Out and The Shape of Water winning Oscars, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the mainstream resurgence of the horror genre in general. Uh, would you say horror is on its way to being recognized more of more for its artistry and given more respect by mainstream outlets than it has in the past? I don't know. You know, I mean, I know what you mean, but like horror has never gone away. I mean, The Walking Dead is huge and has been for a long time. Um, Anne Rice's vampire books were huge in the, in the 80s, you know, and they have been for a while. Uh, the Blair Witch Project was 99. You know, the 90s horror was a little sleepy, but, you know, you look at something like Gone Girl. Gone Girl's horror. I mean, there's no two ways around it. It's, it's, thank you. Jillian, Jillian <laughs> Flynn writes horror. I mean, there's, oh man. Uh, um, so it's like, I feel like horror's sort of been there. Um, I do think what you're saying, though, about like getting this sort of artistic respect, I do think that's very mm-hmm. true. And it's interesting, though, to, I mean, it's interesting to look at stuff like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and, kind of see how sort of snobby critics were about them at the time, even though they praised them, they were like, eh, it's also just a, it's a fun spook ride. So I think you might have a really good point in that way that horror is getting more respect for its artistry now, rather than just it's sort of like thrills and chills. No, I, I, I think so too. And I mean, I'm excited for hopefully that respect and artistry to grow. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. So on 
regular episodes of the podcast, we try to highlight books that don't necessarily get enough attention. So besides reading your books with your passion for horror fiction, I imagine you have a mountain of recommendations you can give our listeners for some books they probably haven't heard of. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it really depends on what you want. Like, I mean, I'm a huge, huge Shirley Jackson nut. And um, I know lots of people have read Haunting of Hill House, and we've always lived in the castle. But for a project I'm doing right now, I read her domestic books, Raising Demons and Life Among the Savages, which are her books. Basically, they're based on articles she wrote for like Good Housekeeping and Ladies Home Journal about raising kids and being a mom. They're amazing. They're so well written and so funny. And they have some real dark frisson to them. Like, she really doesn't glamorize her kids. They seem very kind of spooky and ethereal, but also kind of dangerous. Like, it's not like kids saying cute things. It's like kids saying like, oh, you know, my imaginary friend's not joining us for dinner tonight. Oh, why not? Because I murdered him earlier today. Like, it's really, <laughs> they're really fascinating. And I also have been on a, on a big kick right now with going back and reading through a lot of women who wrote horror in the 70s and 80s, Barry Wood's Tribe. But so I've been doing a lot of that. And, oh, I've been rereading a lot of Clive Barker, which is interesting because his stuff doesn't get republished a whole lot. But I was rereading the Books of Blood, and man, those short, short stories are so phenomenal. They just come out of the box as this baseball bat to the face. Oh, and then two books I can't love more that I just reread both of them recently. One is um, Peyton Place, you know, the Grace Metalia sort of pot boiler from the late 50s, I think 58 or so, about like a small New England town. And it's like, you know, it's like this soap opera below the surface where everyone's getting abortions and sleeping around. And it was sort of the first like book that was like, here's your neighbors and their whores. Um, and it was a huge bestseller in the late 50s and early 60s. And it's phenomenal. It's so good. Um, it's just a hateful, mean, fun-to-read book. But then the other one is, um, which I had read before and loved, and I just reread it, was Charles Portis's True Grit, which, um, you know, it's been made into two movies, one with John Wayne, one by the Coen brothers. But I don't think enough people have read the book, because the book of True Grit is, I think, the great American novel. Um, it's kind of like Huck Finn is the great American novel for 19th century America. I think for 20th century America, True Grit is the great American novel. Because when you read it, you're like, oh, right. Yes, it's a Western. Yes, it's about this 14-year-old girl who hires this grizzled old sort of like gunslinger to, to avenge her father's murder. But the book is all told from her point of view as if she's writing it in this very stilted, almost King James Bible kind of English. And she's really like, everything's about money for her. And there is no honor. There is no dignity. There's just revenge and money. And and then you've got this gunslinger who's fallen on hard times, but like he still believes in sort of these older concepts. And you realize that it's a book about like, yes, we needed a certain kind of person to become the country we are, right? We needed settlers who were willing to live in the middle of nowhere and be bored to tears most of the time to, to farm that land. Yes, we needed these gunslingers to enforce the law and, and where there was no law. Yes, we needed these like cowboys to take these enormous cattle drives thousands and thousands of miles that are just like, you know, brutal physical endeavors. But now we don't need them anymore. They built the country. We're done with them. And it's kind of inconvenient. They're still alive. So let's just push them in a corner and forget about them. It's really, and it's a short book and a fast book. And it's just, you just read it and you're like, yep, great American novel. There you go. Done. Found it. I actually just bought a copy of that the other day. So I am going to be picking that up really soon now. It's phenomenal. 
we did have one uh, question from a Patreon supporter who wanted to know uh, what was a book you read that stood out as the most disturbing, weirdest, or most WTF? Oh, well, easy. Voice of the Clown by Brenda Brown Canary. That book is messed up on an existential level. It's in paperbacks from hell a bit, and I think copies are really, really like expensive these days. But it's phenomenal. And I, it just got moments in it that just... It's the only book that sort of made my jaw drop. But I will also say that I recently read, and it was in the newsletter, um, Death Wish, which is, um, it's not actually Death Wish, but it's like, it's a book called Bronson Street Vigilante. And it basically took the popularity of the movie Death Wish and tried to unofficially and and unlicensed spin it off into a series of men's adventure novels in the 70s. And oh my God. I've never read a book that's more violent and hateful than Bronson Street Vigilante. Like, literally, it's just hateful and horrible. And this guy, like, he even, they paint him to look like Charles Bronson on the cover. His name is Bronson in the book. And it's like, well, he's just a guy taking the law into his own hands because they fit, the police failed his family and they got murdered by thugs. But it's like in this book, everyone's a thug. Like, he murders, he like machine guns at one point, a group of people making a porn movie. He just machine guns 18 people and it's like, good, they deserve it, pornographers. Um, you know, like, the punishments so don't fit the crime. Like, someone, okay, someone's a hateful loathsome drug dealer slash pedophile great but then he has him like eaten alive by rats like you know a, a woman like um works for the drug dealers she doesn't do anything bad but she's sort of a moral gray area well let's just beat her to death with a baseball bat it is i mean my jaw was just like it actually just fell off my face i was like someone wrote this like someone who actually like walks among normal people and is not put in a cage and shipped off to a desert island it really blew my mind in all the worst ways oh man yeah that does sound very wtf for sure and jay's journal too uh that i'm writing about for the newsletter this week i'm just like how can someone market a book this mean and full of lies to like teenagers like hey teenagers i'm trying to help you if you play with the ouija board you're gonna wind up killing your entire family like it's really crazy Oh, someone told you that they believed that Atlantis, like, was a, a land full of ancient seers who had a, a kind of unusual wisdom and ESP? Well, those people are burning in hell. And if you hang out with them, they're going to kill you. Like, it's just, like, so alarmist and bizarre that someone would, would market this to teenagers and their parents. Like, here's some crap you can fill your head with and go crazy. I've had somebody in the last, let's say, two months ago legitimately think that I was... I guess they were around during the Satanic Panic, but I told them I played Dungeons and Dragons, and they're like, "Oh, that's a devil worshiping thing, isn't it?" Man, I was hoping Canada would be more sane. Yeah, they're right there. Uh, they might have been a tourist. If that helps. No, there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one last segment we like to do with our guests is kind of a this or that. Okay. Uh, between things, so zombies or vampires? Uh, vampires. The Exorcist or The Shining? The Shining. Really. The movie, right? Not the book. Either one, whichever one. Okay, I, I the think Shining, the Shining movie, movie versus the Exorcist movie. Exorcist is a great movie. Shining movie, I can watch a million times. Okay. Does it change with books? Uh, no, no. I, I, I would. I actually, the books, I would take the Exorcist over the Shining, and movies, I take the Shining over the Exorcist. All right. How about ebooks or audiobooks? Uh, I take ebooks. Clowns or dolls? Wow. I, I think dolls. I think clowns have had their moment in the sun. I think dolls are going to make <laughs> a big comeback. 
And then one that's very important to me, Coke or Pepsi? Oh, Coke. Oh my gosh. Everybody has said oh, Coke. No. no one no one has been Team Pepsi so far. <laughs> it's a lonely road ahead. I know. Dude. So Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger? Oh, Freddy. And short stories or lengthy novels? Lengthy novels every time. I have a hard time even reading short stories and I can't write them. So novels. Really? So we're not going to be expecting a short story collection from you anytime Man, soon? Man, it's a special skill set. Good ones are amazing. I can't make good ones. All right. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we normally end our episode by recommending some creepy media, like a podcast, video game, or show. So we did want to ask you, what is one of your chilling obsessions? Oh, um, I would say right now it's Children of the Stones, which is a 70s BBC children's show that's like a folk horror thing about a dude and his dad who moved to a village surrounded by standing stones, but also maybe everyone's possessed by aliens. It's illegally, but no one's taken it down yet, all up on YouTube. Uh, And it's got the creepiest intro with the creepiest music to it. So I know it's really out of date, but I'm so behind the times on reading (laughs) things right now or watching things right now. I have never even heard of that. It's Um, great. That sounds amazing. Just watch the opening credits and just it really is skin crawling. So it's Children of the Stone? Children of the Stones, yeah. And uh, before you go, is there anything coming up you would like to plug? Any projects or appearances? No, just uh, September 19th, I start doing a book tour thing for um, We Sold Our Souls. And so GradyHendricks.com has an events page where you can find out everywhere I'm going to be so you can avoid it. All right. Where can people find you online? GradyHendricks.com. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today and answering all our questions. We had so much fun. Uh, So thank you for carving out some time out of your schedule to talk to us. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at BooksFreezerPod or on Instagram at BooksInTheFreezer. You can send us an email at BooksInTheFreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be at BooksInTheFreezer.com where you can find all the books that we mentioned, including everything that Grady Hendricks mentioned in the interview. A special thank you to our patrons. This show would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to become a patron, you can find us on Patreon at Books in the Freezer. If you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher. It helps people find us. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or on Instagram at That's What She Read with two A's. Or on YouTube at That's What She Read. You can find Devin on Twitter at Insomni Reads or on YouTube as The Indie Insomniac. Thank you and join us next time for Books in the Freezer.